Good morning, everybody. Welcome again to Lighthouse Bible Church. Let's begin today, as we always do, by praying together. Heavenly Father, we just want to thank you again for Jesus Christ, our Lord. We thank you also, Father, for the simplicity of salvation. And Father, we also want to thank you for your word, Bible, and for the ministries of the Holy Spirit. Father, today we would ask that the Holy Spirit would guide and direct everything that we will be participating in here today, the message, the Lord's Supper, the singing, the giving, fellowshipping. And, and we would ask too, Father, for your um, oversight and intervention and protection of the persecuted church around the world and the missionaries that are going out in those dangerous places. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please stand and worship with us. Good morning again, everybody. I want to thank y'all for being here this morning. We got a bunch of people aren't here today, and they all have good reasons. I'm not putting it down, but I sure do love it when they're here. So I'm glad you are. All righty, let's uh, look at our announcements this morning as we get started. New month, and we got a new missionary organization, um, Grace Bible Church, Pakistan. First thing I want to say is that. Uh, We're standing in solidarity with Grace Bible Church Pakistan right now because we need to pray for their safety uh, in light of the military conflict that's going on between India and Pakistan. The other day, they were all asked to turn all their lights out so that if there were any bombing aircraft coming from India, that they wouldn't see the target. So please keep them in prayer. Their mission is to serve a flock of Christians in Pakistan, in Arafwala, Pakistan. I'm going to show you a map in a second. And on really good news, though, um, in December, they had the grand opening for their new church building. We've been praying for that, and and I know some of you have supported that financially, and it's finally happened. And I just want to show you a picture of their inaugural service, and there they are. What do you think, huh? Pretty amazing, yeah. Um, So praise the Lord for that. And by the way, uh, our dear friends Gene and Nan Cunningham were with them. To celebrate, and I want to show you a picture of them walking in the ceremony. Look at that. I love that. Maybe I should wear that next Sunday. What do you think? <laughs> but anyway, that's quite a statement. Um, Gene and Nan have supported um, Vassal and Carrie over the years, and it's just wonderful that they were there to be a part of it and um, keep them in prayer. By the way, again, um, I want to show you uh, where they are. And whoops. I don't think that was the right button. You know, I'm like a klutz. Like, like, I've done this a million times. And every time... There we go. All right, just to orient, here's Afghanistan. Okay, here's the border with India. Now, do you see these dotted lines here? That's all disputed territory. And it's been like that since 1947. Both Pakistan and India claim this. And this is the source of almost all the conflict between those two countries. And so you can see, though, that this is Arafwala right here, and it's not that far from the, from the border with India. So that explains why they're sort of in that area where they need to be concerned about any of this spilling over and, and any of the uh, conflict uh, growing and increasing. So again, we pray for the safety of that congregation and their property during this conflict between Pakistan and India. Next week, we're going to show you a short video that was produced by um, Voice of the Martyrs. And uh, 
it's about that. It's about Fazl and his ministry there. So it's really fantastic, and we're going to show that um, next week as part of featuring Grace Bible Church Pakistan this month. This is their website, www.gbcpakistan.org. gbcpakistan.org. But I ask you to pray this morning for Linda, Linda Koshan. Um, many of you know she had her husband, her father has been ill for quite a while and she's taking care of him well it turns out now that dale is also ill and so she's got her hands full so please keep her in prayer and please prayers continue for the pomeroy family as well all righty today's message is called say it ain't so chloe say it ain't so chloe her name is chloe was but there's a report that we'll see this morning that Paul probably wished he never heard on one level, although this letter wouldn't have been written if he didn't get it. All right, let's turn our Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 18, verse 1. Acts, chapter 18, verse 1. Well, we're now finished with our study of Colossians, and this morning we are going to begin our study of 1 Corinthians. We're going to hear from the Lord As the word is preached, and it's a very different letter from Colossians, but very important. Every letter has its own purpose. And while Colossians was was to really raise and glorify the Lord Jesus Christ and his deity, um, this is a very different book, 1 Corinthians. This is where we have to take a look at some of the things we don't want to take a look at. About us, and about sinfulness, and about its impact on others and how the Lord actually died for us to pull us out of these kind of things. But the Corinthians were involved in a lot of things that were sinful and uh, Paul had to deal with it. That's, that's, that's the kind of setting and the backdrop of 1 Corinthians. And we're going to look at that this morning. That's why we're beginning in the book of Acts to see the story of when Paul first came to Corinth and had a ministry there. Acts chapter 18 verse 11. Acts chapter 18, verse uh, 1, sorry. Acts 18, 1. Too many ones up there. Acts 18, 1. We're ending in 11. All right. After these things, he, Paul, left Athens, and he went to Corinth. In Athens, he, had, uh, he came across um, idols everywhere he went, and then he uh, was, was dealing with the philosophers and the so-called wise people in Athens. And they were just interested in something new all the time. And he preached the resurrection of Christ to them and told them that there is a God in heaven, there's just one, and that there will be a judgment coming. So that was in Athens. And now he, he continued in Greece and he went south to Corinth. After these things, he, Paul, left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Achilla, a native of Pontus having recently come from Italy within his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. He came to them, and because he was of the same trade, Paul stayed with them, and they were working, for by trade they were all tent makers. And he was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath and trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. But when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, that's in the north of Greece, It's actually its own separate province in the first century. That's where Philippi was and is. When Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah. But when they resisted and blasphemed, he shook out his garments 
and said to them, Your blood be on your own hands. I am clean. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there, and he went to the house of a man named Titus, rather, Titius Justice, a worshiper of God, whose house was next to the synagogue. And Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his household. And many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. And the Lord said to Paul in the night by a vision, Do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no man will attack you in order to harm you. For I have many people in this city. And he settled there a year and six months, 18 months, teaching the word of God among them. This is the story of Paul coming to Corinth, evangelizing, and then teaching there for a year and a half. Paul did spend a year and a half in Corinth. By the way, I want to point out something to you. A lot of people say that um, Christians should never have any fear. And I understand that. You know, do not fear. In perfect love, cast it out. But sometimes when you're in a new situation and have a lot of threats, it's, it's going to happen. And I want, to, I want you to notice that that's actually what the Lord is dealing with in the heart of Paul in the end of verse 9, where he says, listen, do not be afraid any longer. That tells you that he was. And then he says, and he, and he then goes on and he says, go on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you. We always need to remember that. But furthermore, no man will attack you in order to harm you, for I have many people in this city. You see, see, the Lord doesn't always just tell us, here's the solution in your heart to fear. Sometimes he solves the problem for us. And he says, listen, I've got a lot of people in this city. They are not going to harm you. It's a very practical and in its own way encouraging statement to Paul. He settled there a year and six months teaching the word of God. As we've seen, he started, as he always did, whenever he visited a new city, reasoning with the Jews, as well as what they called Gentile proselytes. Those were Gentiles that were in the process of becoming Jews. They were embracing the Jewish faith. He started in the synagogue, but then he got huge resistance there, and then he went out to the Gentiles. This happened to him again and again. From his very first missionary journey all the way through, he would go to the synagogue first. He would try to win over the Jews telling him that Jesus was the Messiah, proving it from the Old Testament. And while some believed, then the people as a whole resisted and, and, and was really violent at times and so forth. But I want you to notice that even here in chapter 18 of the book of Acts, Paul is still going to the Jews first. He, he, they were always on his heart. They were always part of his ministry. Up to the very end of the book of Acts, when he's in Rome and in prison, he's calling for the Jewish leaders to come to him so that he could convince them that Jesus was their Messiah. He never, he never stopped doing that. Even though, he, yes, he's the apostle to the Gentiles. And you can see that that's always the way it happens. This, by the way, is the movement of the whole book of Acts. From Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, to the ends of the earth. From a Jewish-centered church in Jerusalem, to Paul's ministry throughout the Gentile world. Alrighty, now we're going to fast forward several years. It's now late in the winter, in the year 54 AD. Paul is now in the city of Ephesus. The apostle had left Corinth, where we just saw him, three years before. It was a voyage that took him finally to Ephesus. Please look at Acts 19.1. Acts 19.1. What we're looking at here is Paul establishing the church in Corinth, and then continuing on his missionary activity, his journey, 
And then when he's in Ephesus three years or so later from when he was in Corinth, then he's going to write a letter. This is typical for, for Paul to have gone somewhere for a while and then he's somewhere else and then he either thinks about a church or gets a report about a church and he realizes it's time to write to that church. And, and, and the fascinating thing is that unlike most other um, books in the Bible, we can really target sometimes to the, to the uh, really precisely um, when it was written because of the book of Acts because we have the historical documentation side by side with the letters that were written. And this is an example of that. Look at Acts 19.1. It happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Apollos was a mighty preacher primarily to convince the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of God. So he went to Corinth as well. Now what does that tell you, by the way? about the church in Corinth that Paul's going to write to. Well, it tells you that they're a mixture of Jews and Gentiles. And, and as a matter of fact, there are quite a number of Jews. One of the reasons, as we saw already today, that the uh, Caesar, at around that time, around A.D. 50, had thrown out all the Jews in Rome. And, they had, and one of the places, one of the major places they came to was Corinth. All right. So now we're here three years later, and now... Paul is nearing the end of his time with the Ephesians. And there he had taught the Jews and the Gentiles for three years. And and it's written in the book of Acts that everyone in the province of Asia had heard the word of the Lord. That's the impact of his ministry there. So he's in Ephesus now. And while he's there, at the tail end of his ministry there, what happens? He receives a number of visitors. They're from Corinth. And they include the household of Chloe, from which today's message's title is taken, as well as three others, Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus. All of these came from Corinth. And, and I want you to turn now to 1 Corinthians 1.10. We're going to take a look at these people who were from Corinth, but journeyed to Ephesus to be with Paul. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. This is the background to the letter of 1 Corinthians. It explains the contents of this letter. And it's all based in things that were happening in the first century. Let's take a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. Now I exhort you, brethren, this is Paul now writing to the saints at Corinth. Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. And then look at the next verse. For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that's her household, that there are quarrels among you. So here we see that Chloe had come from Corinth and it was reporting, informing Paul about the situation in Corinth. Paul is in Ephesus. He hears about this. He hears about this from Chloe and no doubt from the others that came. And what, what was the message? The first of message was that there were quarrels among you. What's first in, mo- in many cases tells us, sets the tone for the letter. And this is definitely a case of that. The thing that he had to address first and foremost 
was that there were fighting, there was conflict, there were divisions. And this was the effect of some other causes, as we're going to see. We're going to see that when congregations engage in certain kinds of behaviors and activities, and when they have the wrong attitudes, what results is division, conflict, disunity, quarrels. And this was, this was happening to a large extent. It was a major problem. So much so that Chloe had to go to Ephesus to let him know, hey, there's some real problems here. You know? and, and, and so Paul heard this. You can imagine that it wasn't, wasn't music to his ears. Now, now we notice he goes on. Now, I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, I of Apollos, I of Cephas, and I of Christ. In other words, they were breaking apart into factions based on who they thought their teacher was. So you can imagine, here you have a congregation, and there's certain people that are, that are, be, that are being taught by this one and claim that, you know, that particular pastor or, or, or apostle. Then there's another group that has another man, and a third group that has another one, and then a fourth group that says, we don't need to be taught, We're direct, we are of Christ, we're the special ones. I hope you can see that that's going to create major divisions in a congregation. And that's exactly what was going on. Then he goes on, 13. Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you, except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one would say you were baptized in my name. Remember, Crispus, we saw him already in the book of Acts chapter 18, at the time that Paul visited, uh, started his ministry rather, in Corinth, uh, Crispus was the head of the synagogue. What does that tell you about him? Jewish, right? Yeah. So he baptized him, but then he said, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one would say that you were baptized in my name. Now I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized any other. But Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. Here, and this is going to, we're going to see this other places in the letter of 1 Corinthians, Paul says there's quarrels, there's divisions, and he goes and he says, I, Christ has not been divided, has he? The focus on Christ. Here, he says, I, he's saying, look, baptism is a form where you're being separated you know, I was baptized by this one. I was baptized by that one. And that was separating people. So he says, I didn't come to baptize. I came to preach the gospel. That's unifying. And notice he goes on. He says, not in cleverness of speech, so that what? The cross of Christ would not be made void. You see, he needs to bring the cross of Christ into that congregation. And we're going to see more about that. That's, that's how he's going to deal with the divisions that are going on in the church. All right, that's at the beginning. We, we meet Chloe there. Now let's go to the very end of 1 Corinthians where we're going to see the other visitors that came to Ephesus to inform Paul about the situation in Corinth. 1 Corinthians 16, starting in verse Now I urge you, brethren, 
He's writing to the Corinthians. He's, he's wrapping up this letter. I urge you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanus, that they were the first fruits of Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves for ministry to the saints, that you also be in subjection to such men and to everyone who helps in the work and labors. I rejoice over the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus. Notice that they're with him. They came from Corinth and they've come to be with Paul, just like Chloe's household has. I rejoice over the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus because they have supplied what was lacking on your part. That was Paul's gentle way of saying, you guys are cheap and it's a good thing that these guys came along with some finances because I really need them here in Ephesus. That's my translation. <laughs> For they have refreshed my spirit and yours, therefore acknowledge such men. So Paul in Ephesus gets guests from Corinth. And we've already seen this, but these guests brought news concerning the church at Corinth. This was the way that people found out that there was this social media, was people walking hundreds of miles to go from one city to another to let them know what was happening. You know, it's interesting. You know, if you look at the study of human culture, you know, think about the first century and what that was like, right? Now, they, yes, they had horses, but it was, it was that. It was walking in horses. That was it. And again, sometimes it took days, sometimes longer, because some of this was very dangerous territory. You know, Paul was robbed, beaten, left for dead, and so forth. So it took some time to get from one place to another. And so you got to believe that if, if, if they're going to do that, there's probably a good reason why. I have to laugh because today we, we have so many means of communication, don't we? Don't we? I mean, I mean, at the beginning of the 20th century, we had the phone. That was a big advance, you know. If, 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 if Paul and Stephanus had been, uh, and Chloe had been here in the 20th century, they wouldn't have to make that journey. They go, hey, what's Paul's number again? Right? Now, we have all kinds of technology to communicate. It's interesting, though. I don't think, any, I don't think anything that's gone over the Internet or anything in Twitter can compare to this letter that Paul wrote to 1 Corinthians. I know that's a fact in Twitter, because how many, how many, how many uh, what are they called, characters do you get now? Is it 200 and something now? Yeah. I mean, think about it. Characters, not words. <laughs> so you can't communicate anything of value, right, in that. And Paul, my point just is, is that this was important. And Paul's going to take 16 chapters to deal with what he heard from Corinth both by means of these visitors and something else, which we're going to look at in a minute. But in any case, the news that they brought was very disturbing. We've already seen that Chloe's people said there were quarrels. People were dividing over who their apostle was. And Paul knew that he had to deal with that as soon as he heard it. And we see it continuing. Look at 1 Corinthians 3, 1 to 4. More bad news. More bad news that Paul knew he had to deal with. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 1. It had been three years since he'd been in Corinth. That's enough time for a lot of flesh to fester. In other words, people who are living in their sin natures and people that are, are indulging the flesh, indulging selfishness, lust, greed, can do a lot of damage in three years. And that was exactly what was going on. So this was not something Paul wanted to hear. Think about 
you know, think about missionaries today, you know, and, and, and imagine that they would hear this about churches they were planting in, in Africa or Asia, that, that, that the church had fallen apart, they were broken apart, and then this, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1, and I, brethren, could not speak to you as spiritual men. They were, they had the Holy Spirit dwelling, but he couldn't speak with them as that because they weren't living that way. Notice, I could not speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as infants in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not able to receive it. By the way, that's when he was there. So in a way, this probably this news from Chloe's people it probably wasn't all that surprising because he knew that these were the kind of people that were there. He knew that at the time he was teaching them, they were infants in Christ. They didn't grow much. They were men of flesh. They were still flesh. They gave you milk to drink. Those are the basics of the teachings. But you were not yet able to receive solid food. Indeed. Now here's the sad part. Even now you're not yet able. How did he know that? Because the report from Chloe's people told him that. Even now you're not yet able Three years after I left, for you are still fleshly. Now notice that that fleshly has to do with being infants in Christ. Think about that. In other words, it's a, it's a condition based on your maturity. Fleshly means that you're an infant in Christ. That you still have milk, not solid food, for your word of God intake. Indeed, even now you're not yet able, for you are still fleshly. And then he describes it. How does he know that? But since there is jealousy and strife among you, back to that same problem, jealousy and strife, that's what breaks up church churches. You know, I'm jealous because that one got a better spiritual gift, I think. I'm jealous because they say they're of Christ and I say I'm of Apollos. I'm jealous because that one I know made a lot more money out there in the world and, and they're flaunting it in here. I'm jealous. And then strife. That comes from jealousy often. Now, he says, that's how I know you're still fleshly, because I'm getting these reports of jealousy and strife among you. Are you not fleshly? Are you not walking like mere men? In other words, you're walking like the unbelievers walk. And he goes on and he says, for one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos. Are you not mere men? They're focusing on men. Think about that. They're, they're in a congregation. They're hearing God's words presumably, and yet their focus isn't on Christ, is it? It's on men. It's on Apollos. It's on Paul. That's what they're, they're saying. That's what's important to me. I can brag about who it is that I studied under that baptized me. That's what they were. And of course, they were focused on themselves. They were walking like mere men. For one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos. Are you not mere men? In other words, there's, there's no difference between you and the unbeliever in terms of how you live. How you talk, how you treat one another. So this is all based on the report that Chloe's people were telling Paul. There's divisions, there's conflict, there's jealousy, there's factions, there's strife. He had heard all of that. But in addition to that, Paul also received a letter from the church themselves. That, that when Chloe came, she probably brought the letter with her. Or, or, or one of the other men that came. Stephanus or Fortunatus or Achaicus. They, they brought a letter from the church at Corinth. And in that letter, they asked Paul a number of questions. By the way, questions they, they should have known the answers to. 
Or maybe they did. And what they were trying to do was to see if Paul would somehow justify their bad behavior. We'll see more of that. But in any event, they had a number of questions for Paul. So think of it. Paul is not dealing with what's going on at the church. He's dealing with direct reports. And he's dealing with their very letter that's going to show where they're at as well. All right, so I'd like you now to turn to 1 Corinthians 7. Let's take a look at the fact that there was a letter that the church wrote. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. This is, the, this is the big picture of the letter today. This is the understanding why the material that's in there is in there. Okay? And it progresses. And Paul gives clues as to where he's at, whether it's a report or whether it's from their letter. But notice, 1 Corinthians 7, 1 to 3. Now, concerning the things about which you wrote. You see it? This is, by the way, from the end of chapter 6 to the beginning of chapter 7 is where he pivots. He's been dealing with the report from Chloe's people in chapters 1 through 6, and now he's turning to the letter. He's turning from the people in front of him and what they were saying to that letter that the Corinthians wrote him with their questions. And notice the first two words of verse 1. Now concerning. Keep that in mind, because that's going to be the marker for the questions that they're going to ask. So here we see, first of all, he acknowledges that I'm getting, these, getting the following material from the things about which you wrote. And he goes on. What is it? It is good for a man not to touch a woman. So that's interesting. So somehow the question, I don't know how it was worded, but it has to do with men touching women. And so he's dealing with that. He says it's good for that not to happen. It's kind of interesting. It's so different from our culture. I mean, not only was that a totally different time in terms of communication, but the fact is that when Paul taught, he, he, he really de-emphasized for good reason, especially in Corinth, this sexuality between people. Why? Because they were not at all, you know, one man, one woman. They were all, we'll see that, but they were, the question here ultimately comes down to, hey, you know what, can I leave my husband? For any reason, can, can, I, can I divorce my wife? You know, I'm tired of her. I want out somebody else. So he brings it way to the other extreme. He says, you know what? It's good for a man not to touch a woman. But he would say later on, I wish that all men were as I. Paul was, uh, was celibate. That's a total... Can you understand that in a culture like ours today, that is just dripping with sex, selling everything, and, and the, the, the people that are in, in the media and on... Hollywood, and not just that, all over the place, our politicians, our football presidents. But everybody's involved with that. And imagine somebody comes on in here and says, you know what, it's good for a man not even to touch a woman. Can you imagine the shock? Can you imagine, like, it's like somebody diving into water that's zero degrees. But he did that on purpose. He, he need to change, they need to change things around. Why? Because if that's something that is causing you not to focus on Christ, then get rid of it. It's like Jesus said. If your eye is causing you to stumble, pluck it out. Now, he didn't mean that literally, as we've studied. But th- there's a principle there. Whatever it is that is causing you to be part of the divisions, to be focused on men and women rather than Christ, get rid of it. All right. Now concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. But because of immoralities, 
Each man is to have his own wife. And each woman is to have her own husband. You see, he's, he's, he's kind of setting this up that you guys are, are bragging about your sexual exploits and you want to know if you can leave your wives and leave your husbands. But I want to tell you something. The reason why uh, Paul is acknowledging the need for marriage is because of their immoralities. That's humbling. Isn't that humbling? I find it so. It's true. I think about what I would be like if I weren't married in the sexual area. It wouldn't be pretty. And that's, that's true of a lot of people, maybe not everybody. He's saying, no, that's why. To prevent immorality, I'm allowing the hus- husband and wife to marry. It's humbling. And each woman is to have her own husband. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise also the wife to her husband. Well, all that means, of course, is that, look, if, if, if one of the functions of marriage is to prevent immorality by, because you have a sex, one sexual partner, then... Be sexual partners. That makes sense? Alright. Can you see how this is a very different book from Colossians, by the way? Already we're getting involved in some stuff that, you know, is a little dicey and things we would rather not talk about. Including me. Alright, so what do we have here? We have two reasons why Paul wrote 1 Corinthians. One, to deal with troubling things that had been reported to him. First hand reports. Eyewitness testimony. And then two answering the questions that the Corinthian assembly had posed to him. All right. And that's the structure of this letter, and I want to just lay this out. Um, In chapters 1 through 6, the first six chapters, what he deals with first are the problems that were reported to him. Why? Because he knew that was reliable information. And after all, he knew that these people had traveled a long distance to give this report. And the report was really trembling, even more so than the contents of the letter. So he's going to deal with that first. He knew that the, that the ultimate issue there was the vision and conflict. And some of the manifestations of which came from their, their, their sinfulness, their flesh. So he dealt with that first. For example. We turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Again, 1 through 6, dealing with the problems reported to him by people that came from Corinth. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1. 1 Corinthians 5, 1. This is the section of the letter, chapters 1 through 6, that is dealing with the reports. I want you to see one of the reports. 1 Corinthians 5, 1 to 2. It is actually reported that there is immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles, the unbelievers, that someone has his father's wife. That means exactly what it sounds like. It means that a man was sleeping with his father's wife. Now, it was put that way to, to make sure you understand it was not as bad as maybe you would think, because it's not his biological mom, but it's pretty bad. When you have a man who's, 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 who is sleeping with his father's wife, that's pretty immoral. Okay? So that's a big problem. He says, listen, he says, someone has his father's wife. Now that's bad enough. But what, what was he really concerned about? Look at verse 2. You, all of them, have become arrogant and have not mourned instead so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. In other words, by not separating and not asking this person to leave, 
they were, in a sense, justifying the behavior. And that's worse than the actual behavior, if you think about it. Why? Well, the reason it's worse is that that behavior deals with one person, one family. But when everybody in the congregation now says, hey, that's all right. Now it's everybody is defiled. Can you see that? And that was the real problem. That the sexual immorality that they were looking at, they had no problem with. Boy, is that a problem in the church today. Boy, have we seen churches embrace sexual immorality, even to the point of their leaderships. And I don't want to go into that anymore. You can fill in the blank. But can you see how contemporary this is? Can, can you see how, yeah, we would love to stay in Colossians. Oh, I understand that. But there's a time for 1 Corinthians. It's a time to get real about what's really going on in churches. Where every, I'll tell you, when we get through this, every one of us will be convicted of something. And that's intentional. That the Lord wants us to understand that we still have sin in the flesh. And that we still need to have the Lord deal with us because of that. That's what 1 Corinthians is really about. Alright, so those are the first six chapters, the reports that he received. And then the rest of the letter from chapters 7 through 16 is when he answers the questions. Alright, so if you, so that's, I hope that's kind of nice. You can kind of understand the letter a little better now, right? Okay, the first six chapters, reports, 7 through 16, questions. Okay. And how does he introduce the questions? You remember two words? Now, concerning, remember? Anyway, we'll see it again. All right, so we saw that first question, right, about marriage at the beginning of chapter 7. Here's the second one. Please turn to 1 Corinthians 7, 25. Same chapter. Just go to the, well, no, you went to 5 again. Go back to chapter 7 now in verse 25. Second question. First question about marriage. Second question. Now concerning. See that marker? That's telling you there's another question. Now concerning. What? Virgins. Hmm. I have no command of the Lord. Isn't that interesting? This is something that the Lord didn't deal with directly. However, Paul, as the apostle to the churches has his own viewpoint on this. And, and that carries weight too. Perhaps not as much as if he got something directly from the Lord, but it's not as if we can ignore what he's going to teach either. We still have to take it to heart. He says, I give an opinion as one who by the mercy of the Lord is trustworthy. In other words, you can trust my opinion as if it were directly from the Lord. Now, we're not going to go into all that, what he brings up about virgins. But I wanted you to see the pattern. Again, at the end of chapter 7, now concerning virgins. Now concerning issues of marriage, and then now concerning virgins. And the question they're going to ask now is, if I have a daughter, and she's unmarried, should I keep her unmarried, or should I force her to marry? That was the, that was the question. Okay? And we're going to see how he answers that when we get to that. For now, I just want you to see that there are questions starting in chapter 7. And again, he introduces his answer to each of the questions with the phrase, now concerning. So that makes it easy to see when he's done answering one question and he's on to the next one. As soon as we see now concerning, ah, he's on to the next question they asked him. Well, I got a question to ask about the whole letter of 1 Corinthians. I want you to know it would just, this is only a few minutes into this, but I hope you got the basic sense, the basic tenor of what this letter the contents of it. 
So I want to ask a question. What kind of letter is this? What kind of letter is this? I'd like you to turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 to 17. What ought we to expect to see now that we understand the situation, the context, the reports that were, that were not pleasant, the bad news, and the letters that showed a misunderstanding of so much of what the Christian life is about? So what will we expect this, this letter to be? Let's look at 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 to 17. Here, Paul is instructing Timothy about his preaching and teaching ministry. And here in verse 16, he's going to cover the waterfront. He's going to see this is all the ways in which Scripture is used. Okay? So it's a pretty important passage. Look at verse 16. All Scripture is inspired by God. That means, by the way, that it's God-breathed. That in the, the, origin, not the, yeah, the original manuscripts, when they were written, those words were breathed by God. That's how, that's how reverent and serious we ought to be with God's Word, by the way. We shouldn't be, you know, as some people do, Saying, well, you know, that probably wasn't in there, or he meant something different, and all. No. No, the words are God breathed, and we ought to honor them that way and be convicted about them, too. He goes on, he says, it's, all scripture is now profitable. For what? Four things. Notice, for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness. So that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. In other words, no matter what was going on in a congregation, what kind of congregation you have, the word of God is profitable, but for different things. Maybe it's a, it's a, it's a congregation that you can just teach. But maybe it's a congregation that needs reproof first or correction before they can get to training in righteousness, which is the practical life. We're going to see a little more of this, obviously. So let's step back. Look at those four things. Teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. What kind of letter do you think 1 Corinthians is going to be? Reproof and correction. Right. Reproof first, followed by correction. Reproof first. Because that means that their faults have to be pointed out. Before they're ready to have their faults corrected, they need to come to grips with the fact that they have problems. Does that make sense? You ever have a person in your life that totally ignores and denies that they have a problem in whatever area? And, and believe me, if they're denying it, you can, whatever it is you're telling them as a solution is going to fall on deaf ears because they don't even think they need it. So that's what he first had to do with the Corinthians. He had to shine a mirror up and say, this is what's really happening. This is against God's word. That's the first thing. Reproof. And then correction. Now, what are we going to do about it? That's the letter of 1 Corinthians, in a nutshell. Reproof followed by correction. So again, we're going to find 1 Corinthians a very different letter than Colossians. Colossians, after all, we saw this when we were studying it, was a combination of instruction, persuasion, and exhortation. In other words, there was really little, if any, reproof. Now, there were, there were warnings of things that were out there, the false philosophies, the legalism, and so forth. But there was very little reproof or correction needed for the congregation. 
And that's very different from what we have in 1 Corinthians. So we're going to see that the reproof and the correction comes first. That's not to say there isn't instruction in 1 Corinthians, because there is. There's some really amazing teaching. You know, if you've read the book before, spiritual gifts and love and those kind of things. But first, these, these, these sinful behaviors needed to be dealt with. All right. Please turn to 2 Timothy chapter 4. Go forward a little bit. Chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. We see again in Paul's instructions to Timothy. What is his preaching of the word designed to do? 2 Timothy verse, chapter 4, verse 1. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. When the people want to hear it and when they don't want to hear it. When they're interested in the teachings of the Word of God and when they're interested in accumulating teachings after their own appetites. No matter what, preach the Word. And what's going to happen? What, what, what is it that the Word of God contains? Why is preaching so important? Reprove. There it is again. Rebuke. Exhort with great patience and instruction. What do you notice about those four things? Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. What comes first? Reprove. What does that mean? To reprove is to point out a fault. You know, there's there's a misunderstanding of grace, which goes something like this. I see my brother in a fault, but I know that it'll come across as judging him if I say anything about it. Right? Well, that's not grace. All right? Now, now that's not, I mean, that's not, it's neither. Okay? It's, it's, not, it's not legalism to point it out because you're helping the person. In fact, it's, it's worse not to point it out. Why? Because they're going to go on in that area and they're not going to be ready for any correction. They need to have somebody with the guts to tell them, no, that's wrong. That's against the word of God. That's not legalism. That's your best friend, by the way. Somebody can look you in the eyes and say, you know, you have to deal with this. This is, this is something that you can't just ignore. Well, that's reproving, to point out the fault. To reprove and to rebuke. What's the difference? Well, here's rebuke. Rebuke is to express strong disapproval. So it's one thing to point out a fault. Hey, you know, that's not according to the word of God. But then it continues with rebuke, expressing strong disapproval. That's wrong. I don't like that. And he goes on and says the threat, this is part of the definition, the threat of unpleasant consequences for continued sinning or misbehavior. Now, I want to just point out something to you. This does not say that this is the threat of God condemning you. Okay? This is actually, this is actually if I can put it this way, if our, our relationship with the Lord, if we call that vertical, our relationship with one another and within the church, I'll call that horizontal. This is horizontal. This has to do with our lives together and the leadership of the church doing our job. And, and so the unpleasant consequences are either going to be the, 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 the natural consequence of what you're doing, 
Okay. Um, if you're if you're sleeping around, then you're going to eventually have a lot of angry people, and you may have a disease. Now, God didn't do that to you, right? In fact, God warned you not to. Okay. But there are consequences like that. There are just when you're doing that stuff, it just follows that these things are going to happen eventually, probably when you least expect it. But the other kind is what we have a responsibility for to one another. We're going to see this. We also have consequences that the Lord has asked us to put on brothers who continue sinning and continue to misbehave. We're going to see that. By the way, this passage in 2 Timothy is the only time we see this word for rebuke. But no, make no mistake, Paul tells Timothy to rebuke people when the situation calls for it, to express strong disapproval and the threat of unpleasant consequences if they continue sinning. By the way, when it comes to us and what we are to do as a congregation, the unpleasant consequences in view relate to church discipline. And church discipline is primarily separation. It's primarily, as, as Paul would say in another letter, he says, don't, don't speak to one, don't eat with one. Pretty harsh. But sometimes that's required. If you, if, if you can't get to them any other way, if they're not listening to you, then it's time to step it up. By the way, Paul's going to say, we already saw that, is throw them out. If, if they're continuing to do that thing, and it's having an effect on other people, and they won't listen, and they're, they're, not, they're disobedient, there comes a point at which we say, please, we don't want you back. That's part of it, too. I know it's severe. You might say, well, that's not grace. Well, of course it is. I mean, what's the gospel message, after all? The gospel message is, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, and his son died and rose again to save you. Save you from what? From severe consequences of not believing, right? There's nothing more severe consequence than the lake of fire. So you're going to say, well, that's it. God's not gracious? Of course he is. But there is, there is who he is, which is righteous and just. So he has to be all that he is. Love, grace, righteous, and just. And that's what we're dealing with here. But here it's on the horizontal level. It's with one another that there's a time for discipline within the church. I will say this, that the, there was, there, this gets carried away with. You know, in churches, they get carried away with things that they shouldn't even be dealing with. There's a lot of things that are private. There are a lot of things that should not be made public and have discipline applied to it. This is when it's obvious they're flaunting it, they think there's nothing wrong, and other people are starting to be affected by it. Just so we're clear on the category. All right, look at 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 19. 1 Timothy 5, 19. Do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. By the way, do not, we should not receive an accusation against anybody except on the basis of two or three witnesses. But here he's talk, talking about the elders. However, verse 20, those elders in context who continue in sin, what? Look the other way because he's such a nice fella. That what it says. No, it says rebuke 
in the presence of all. Now, why in the presence of all? I'll tell you why. Because elders have a special duty. Their requirements to be in that position are greater. It's not a spiritual gift, by the way. It's an office. And so there are certain standards of in that, being in that office. Why? Because they have tremendous impact and influence on people. If you're in a church and the elder is doing something, then you're more likely to say, oh, I guess that I can do it too. See, they're in a public place. So, so, so they're dealt with first and publicly, if need be. That's what it says. It says, those who continue in sin rebuke. What was that again? It was like expressing that warning, strong disapproval, telling people to stop doing what they're doing, telling that there'll be unpleasant consequences, including church discipline if need be. Rebuke in the presence of all so that the rest also will be fearful of sinning. All right, so there's a time for that. I want to repeat what I just said a couple of minutes ago. It's not like it's every week that there's going to be somebody else that we have to rebuke publicly. No, and it's also not something where, you know how it is, there's a rumor mill or somebody comes up to you and they say, well, why haven't you done it to that guy? I know something. No, that's not it at all. It's when the issue is public, when there's two or three witnesses, all right, and they're not in the clique, they're, just, they're people that are reliable, then you, have, then you deal with it, okay? So I wanted to just make sure we don't get the wrong idea. But now, as we've already seen, I think, I mean, if you've got a man who is sleeping with his father's wife, I mean, that's pretty bad, right? I mean, let's just be real here, right? That's pretty bad, all right? Um, so we're going to see which things require a strong rebuke, but the Corinthians were engaged in several forms of really sinful behavior, and they needed to receive a strong rebuke. All right, let's take a look at 1 Corinthians 5. 1 Corinthians 5, 9 to 13. Here are the kind of things that do require separation. 1 Corinthians 5.9 I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world. Or with the covetous or swindlers or with idolaters. For then you would have to go out of the world. In other words, they're everywhere in the world. Unbelievers are engaged in this all the time. And it's not our job as a church to go out there and rebuke or separate from them. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting because that's the opposite of what happens in many cases. In many cases, the church wants to put down the unbeliever as if they had any way to stop because they're not believers. All right? It's kind of turn that around. We have a culture now where we have the church beating up the world, and then he says, don't do that. He says, no, I didn't mean the unbeliever. Then he goes on, verse 11. But actually, I wrote to you, 1 Corinthians 5.11, I wrote to you, what? Not to associate with any so-called brother. If he is an immoral person, covetous, idolater, a reviler, or a drunkard, or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. So notice, first of all, it says so-called brother. 
You, you do realize that in, when, when you have assemblies and congregations, very often there'll be unbelievers that'll be walking in and, and even being a part of us maybe for a while. So we can't assume that everybody who comes is a believer. And it certainly stands to reason that if, if they're, in, they're engaging in this behavior and starting to affect the congregation, we're going to have to deal with it. But he says, no. He says, I'm talking about so-called brothers. Now, I want you to notice something else here. So we don't get, If he is an immoral person. That doesn't mean that he engaged in one act of immorality. It means that that's his lifestyle. He continually does it. That's who he is. He loves doing it. Just be clear, be clear here. Covetous, the same thing. That's who they are. It doesn't mean that, you know, maybe they did something that got a little extra money that was kind of iffy. No, it means their whole life is covetous. Same thing with an idolater. Okay? Somebody who, you know, as, as he'll say, you know, holds to a form of godliness while denying its power. They give lip service to being a Christian, but in reality, they're worshiping other idols of various kinds, a reviler or a drunkard. I want to emphasize again, it doesn't mean that you had a drinking problem in the past. It just means that you recognize it as a problem and you're doing everything you can to stop. Or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do not judge those. Do you not judge those who are within the church? Those who are outside, God judges. But what is the discipline when we have a situation, when we have a person who's in this lifestyle? Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. Isn't that what it says? Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. Can you see that there is a time when we have a a brother or sister in Christ who has a lifestyle of these things where we have to ask them to leave? And that's, 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 I know that's not... Pleasant, but that's what the Bible says. That's what I got to teach, and that's what we got to listen to and obey. So, can you see how this is a very different letter from Colossians? But can you see how there's a time and place for everything in God's Word? And that we need to know these things too. And we need to live in them every bit as much as we live in the other passages that we love. And so, again, this is not to condemn, but this is to have our eyes open and to be aware that this is really how the Lord wants the churches to behave. Now, why? I'll get this one more time. Is it because he's a stickler for rules? We already know he's not. We know the Lord's love. We know his grace. What we also should come to realize is what the, what the Corinthians needed to come to realize, and that is how precious the body of Christ is to God the Father. And so he's going to protect the body of Christ. That's why these things are in here. It's not to become legalistic or judge people. It's to protect the body. So therefore, when anything gets to the point where it's hurting the body, it has to be dealt with. And that's what this is saying. And that's, that's a comfort, I think, to all of us to realize that you know, the Lord has set things up so that the elders deal with these things when they're here so that they won't threaten you guys. All right? That's the whole reason. And not just the elders, but we have leadership responsibility to lead in that effort. And then hopefully you'll support us in that as well. All right, it's time for the Lord's Supper. Let's close in prayer. Um, actually, before we do that, I just want to mention where we're headed next. We're going to look at um, the, the, the second part uh, in brief, and we're going to see where he's dealing with the letters, the questions in the letters, and then we're going to move on to see what are the solutions at the high level next week. What are the solutions that God gives in this letter for the, these big fleshly problems? All right, now let's close in prayer. Father, We thank you, Father, that you're honest with us. 
And that you, you, you help us and cause us to realize that we still have sin in these bodies of ours. And if it's not dealt with by you and by the brothers and sisters, that it could get out of hand in a hurry. And so, Father, we just thank you for letting us know this and giving us the tools that we need. And we pray also, Father, that as we grow and grow together, that these things would fade as a manifestation in our congregation and in, and in the body of Christ in general. And now we ask, Father, that we would turn our minds and hearts to your Son and to his death on the cross as we celebrate the Lord's Supper here today together. We ask this all in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Spirit. Amen. And this time I'd like to invite the ushers forward to pass out the communion elements. The Lord's Supper passage for the church is also in 1 Corinthians. And I don't think that's an accident. I think that when the Lord has to deal with these things, he realizes that at the end of of all of this, he needs us to be reminded about the fact that our sins and iniquities he remembers no more. That his blood of Christ has dealt with the sin problem. And that God is actually a, is a God of love and restoration. And we are to be people of restoration. Yes, there are times when we have to deal with things. But the real goal is for restoration. And that's what he showed when he had his son die for us. That we would no longer be exiles and enemies, but instead be reconciled to him. And throughout the letter of 1 Corinthians, that again and again is the answer that Paul brings out to these issues that are going on. He, he just simply points to the cross of Christ. He said this in, in 1 Corinthians 1. He said, since, the begin, since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews, a stumbling block. And to those Gentiles, foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. 1 Corinthians teaches us so much about the death of the Lord. It teaches that he died for our sins. That's what Paul, Paul gives the clear, succinct message of the gospel in 1 Corinthians as well. I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received from Christ, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried and that he rose, was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. The first importance was for the Corinthians to know that Christ died for all their sins. And Paul, when he came to Corinth, he was determined to know nothing except one thing about the saints. He said, when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God, for I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, why? Why Christ crucified? Because that's what the Corinthians needed to realize. That's what we all need to realize when we are, when we are convicted, when we are reproved by God's word. That the cross is the answer to it. But we also need to realize that his death 
is for us because we're sinners. In other words, they and we need to become more humble and to accept that. And and also they needed, and we do too, to grasp that Christ also died for our brothers and sisters in Christ. As a matter of fact, in the letter of 1 Corinthians, we are told when we sin against the brethren, we're sinning against Christ. Now that ought to be something that helps us understand the importance of unity. And the unity is a major reason why the Lord's Supper is celebrated. That there be one body. So, on the cross, Christ dealt the death blow to our sins. But not only our sins, he also dealt the death blow to the sin in our flesh. That happened through the cross too. God the Father canceled our debt as Christ bore our sins in his body. But he didn't do that so he could just keep on sinning. He did that so we could finally overcome the flesh. And third, Christ dealt the death blow to our old man, who we were in Adam, and asked the question, how could the saints who died to sin still live in it? And we are not immune to the kind of arrogance that would minimize the sinfulness of sin either. We too need to spend time reminding ourselves once again that we also must be conformed to Christ crucified. This means to have our minds renewed so that we see our sinfulness from the perspective of the cross, from the perspective of God and Christ, and to understand the magnitude of forgiveness that it took to forgive us for all our sins, the overflowing love and grace and righteousness that it took for God to justify the ungodly sinner who believes. And finally, to understand that when we were freed from sin, whether we like it or know it or not, we became slaves of righteousness. That is what God wants us to be. And finally, to know that our old man was crucified with Christ for a reason, so that this body of sin might be put out of business. What a series of death blows were, were, were dealt by the death of Christ. So again, we turn to 1 Corinthians, and now we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper together and proclaim that death of the Lord. For I received from the Lord, Paul writes, that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we really do proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we just thank you now for giving us this time every month, every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper, to reflect upon the cross, to understand what about us was made the cross necessary, our sins, our flesh, who we were in Adam. And help us, Father, to understand how that ought to change who we are, how we live, how we see one another. And Father, help us 
in all of this to understand that every bit of this comes from your love as well as your justice. And that we ought to see it that way. We ask it all in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, by the power of the Spirit. Amen. All right, next service is Bible study this Thursday at 7. Also want to remind people that Kathy Davis of Arizona, remember she wrote a letter to us, she wants to be able to write back and forth with one of us. So please see me if you'd like to try that out. I have her address. And uh, one other thing, and that is that if you have any questions about today's message or the gospel or other biblical questions, I really do invite you to come up uh, with me. I'll be down here after service, which is about a minute, and I really do invite you to come up. There's anything. Um, sometimes, you know, what happens, too, is that somebody will ask me something, and I'll realize that it's something that really needs to be dealt with, and not, not in a negative way, but people, other people are asking the same question, and that's a real service to me to be able to tailor or include something in a future message that answers it, so. All right, let's close in prayer again. Father, we thank you for the gift of prayer. And we know that we are to pray always. And we would ask, Father, that the Holy Spirit would enable us to do that as he does. And that he would also put the words on our hearts and in our mouths that are the prayers that are uh, you are, know that we need to pray. And we also pray again for the persecuted church and the, pray for the, our people that are suffering. And we pray, uh, especially today, for Grace Bible Church Pakistan that they would be protected and shielded from any military activity. We ask it all in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You are dismissed. Enjoy this day.